Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. You're recording me. Hello everybody, it's episode 80 of Bilge Pumps, and uh, since unfortunately there is uh, some kind of blockade in the, the, the regular old crew, that's myself, Drakinafel, Jamie from Armoured Carriers, and uh, Dr. Alexander Clark. Search parties mm-hmm. have been sent out, and a uh, blockade runner has been dispatched, so hopefully that will be with us at some point. We are hoping to have him to, uh, on the chat. He's probably out there with a crowbar trying to um, unstick the... Um... United States um, port system. Uh, he's, he's probably like me, crowbar. currently going, currently searching, and this is because Jamie has started this off. We weren't, weren't sure what topic we were going to do, and then Jamie mentioned that someone might actually be investing in infrastructure, and considering Sal and me have similar loves for investing in infrastructure, he is probably like me at the moment, frantically searching for what details might be available and what infrastructure they're actually going to invest in. So this is referring to Huntington Ingalls mentioning something about how their projects to build nuclear-powered submarines is falling behind, and the only solution they can think of is infrastructure. Woohoo! Um, th- now, there's either going to be a mass purge of middle management for suggesting the, this uh, heinous crime, <laughs> or... They're going to charge the US government a large bill. That, Ooh. Yes. <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. That it's probably the latter option. They're going to do minimal infrastructure upgrades, but they're going to charge maximum money. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the things, as you said, we've talked about before. But you know, it, it is a bit sad that it's taken them falling behind on a program that is already under a lot of stress to even consider maybe the solution should be opening up a few more slipways or, you know, maybe at least investing in an extra crane or two. Well, you know, they could always, um, you know, maybe build a new shipyard down here in Australia because weren't we expecting them to build us our nuclear submarines um, after dumping the French in such a glorious manner? Yeah, but you see, that would be be practical and effective, which means that in the US military industrial complex, it's definitely not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it it boggles the mind how it's taking, let's face it, a private company to think about expanding its industrial base at a time when everyone and their dog is screaming about needing to upgrade and you know increase the size of navies because there's a there's a potentially hostile power or two out there who are quite happily expanding their navies at quite a significant rate before we get too enamored with this and Mm. this is the trouble the moment when it came up and was first mentioned and jamie was quite popular as you know jamie is probably even more cynical than you and i so him saying it (laughs) did sort of make me happy but (laughs) <laughs> it also stirred a memory in my head, and I'm sure if Sal was here, that's Sal Mercadangus, he would be, of course, telling me, reminding me of this as well. But Hunting Ingalls have actually been announcing this pretty much every year, in January of every year, since ni- 2019. Oh, They're going oh to be doing infrastructure investments. Because oh, for every year since then, they have been saying they're having not, they don't have enough infrastructure. And I have got all the articles open in front of me. In fact, in the nicest way, Defence News... I do love pe- uh, do love the people who worked for, uh, work for you and how how 
much work they do if they're listening. But uh, Megan Eckstein, if you're listening, your article from this year is far better written than John Harper's was from last year on pretty much the same subject. Just just think you should uh, know this one. Megan, great article. John, still good, but not quite as good as Megan. You could get some tips. Okay. I mean, I, I haven't gone back to their so, um, now, previous one. So, 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 so the one smile, the one smile on my afternoon research for bilge pumps has been stripped off my face by Dr. Clark. Well, yeah. To be fair, given the timing of... Timing of um, the whole thing it could all you could also be looking at a situation where it's um they were planning on doing it and because of course we all know what happened at the end of 2019 yeah so it could be that they're they're now actually able to to do something they've been wanting to do for a while Mm. which would be nice You'd be glad to know they're not only looking at the potential infrastructure, they're also looking at 3D uh, 3D printing. And again, I am quoting from the Megan Eckstein article, which is, as I said, very well written. I have seen seen that one mentioned a few times now, where they're looking at Mm. 3D printing parts of the the structure to try and reduce the... Here's my advice of what they should be looking at. Um, it's, It's something revolutionary. It's called a crane. And what it does is it lifts stuff. And it allows you to assemble the space. And here's the other thing they should look at. It's something called a graving dock. And if you want to build something really fast, what you do is you build them about 200 to 300 meters long and you cover them. So they have a huge cover. And this stops them being affected by rain and weather and spy satellites and all sorts of things. And if you have the cranes running along inside, they're just so happy being inside in the warm. And so are the staff that, you know, they just build quicker. And if you have these things, you can build things like submarines, which are really quite useful. And you can also maintain things like submarines, which are really, really quite useful. And it's just it's just brilliant to have. Or you could gold plate the manager's hand door handle. And you know, give him diamond studded soles on his shoes. Um, buy that extra three yachts in the Caribbean with a matching pair in the Maldives. I, I will, Jamie. I will now actually confirm your opinion <laughs> because I, 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 I've occasionally worked with um, a group called the Phoenix Think Tank, which I was helped out when they started started beginning and worked out something there. There. They had a very passionate, uh, passionate group, and they were very hard working at making the case they So anyway, as part of that, ended up going to see Lockheed Martin. I was one of the people free, so I went with them. And I have never been. I have. Li- I one of my best friends from school works as a director for Barclays in their investment division. He is his his office is swanky as anything he works in a swiss he, he works in the swiss part of the bank swanky as anything okay office his office is nothing compared to the lockheed martin office i mean <laughs> his office it looks positively plain mundane and he this folks we again we were person short and he was around but i said well why don't you come with me because you're used to dealing with these sort of people all the time and i'm sure they're going to try and spin us a line so you know you come with me and he was literally walking in going, how big is their office budget? 
I probably have to sell two F-35s to pay for this office. <laughs> yes, well... I have never seen a banker with office envy before. He had massive office envy going on. Yes. Now I'm desperately worried. Desperately worried. Uh, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's it's one of those it's one of these um, things, you know. The, the, I think I've wound Jamie up so much now with that news. He's running off to get drink. drink. Well, you, you, you know what? You know what it it makes me do apart from anything else. Um, I'm just I'm just kind of sitting there going. Are you taking any of this seriously? Um, to in terms of you know the whole, with, you're supposed to be when you were talking about the U.S. U.S. military, U.S. government. It's like you're supposed to be the world's top military. You're supposed to be trying to retain that position, and yet no one wants to invest in infrastructure. No one wants to invest in actually funding a, you know, this is, and I know I've said this before, you don't get a Navy, sorry, you don't get to maintain naval supremacy on your choice of budget. You maintain naval supremacy by having a larger and more powerful Navy than whoever else wants to be the top dog. And if they decide they don't want, and and if, you know, if they decide they're going to spend more money, you also have to spend more money or you have to acknowledge that you're no longer the top dog. What you can't do is sit behind a desk and say, yes, we are we are number one. We're always going to be number one because manifest destiny or some other nonsense. End of and, history. Yeah. And not which is act- only put forward by historians who really should be gatekeeped out of history. Mm. But we'll leave that to one side. Um and, and and yeah, and then not actually you know, pay pay for what you're claiming to have because that I, <laughs> there, there's there's been many many ways that former top naval powers have fallen, um, and you, some of them are a bit more embarrassing than others, but so far in history. I have not come across one that ended up falling because they couldn't be bothered and just sat there relying on propaganda. Um, that was, you know, the, the, the fact is that everyone has fought, either everyone has fought for it and lost. You know, the Dutch fought for naval supremacy, they lost. Um, the Spanish had naval supremacy, uh, ended up fighting practically everybody in Europe and ended up losing. Um, the Romans for a long time had naval supremacy. They lost it through neglect, but the Ottomans, if, as long as you consider the, well, depending if you, which you consider the true Roman Empire, Western or Eastern, but the Vandals did in the Western one, rather appropriately, um, and the Ottomans did in the Eastern one, so even they went down swinging at the end. Um, and the actual the Byzantine navy was quite good. They had Greek hmm. fire and all sorts of things. Yeah. They did actually, to an extent, invest in their navy. The French on several occasions have challenged for naval supremacy, um, but went down fighting, losing it. The Germans obviously tried it in World War One. Um, 
And I don't think the Germans actually ever really tried to go for naval supremacy. They were always going to Rick's fleet. The idea well, it, that they it could, was their it was it their was, ambition. The, their they, ambition they, was to basically dominate the supreme naval power by having enough mm. power that the, the supreme naval power couldn't fight them, and didn't mm. realize that that would mean the supreme naval power would have to fight them. But even then, it they at least gave it a good go. Yes, um, they and, certainly built the infrastructure. Yeah. So the the really the only the only power that the only time a naval supremacy has passed completely uh, well not unrelated to violence but without conflict between the power that had it and the power it's passed to has been the transition from Britain to America and that's largely been through treaties and alliances um, and you know this kind of conflict called World War II Um, so where both parties are on the same side and but, to an extent, the Suez Crisis, but we'll leave that to one side. Yes, but but at, at, at no point has there been a, what, let's face it, is arguably a hostile power trying to claim the naval supremacy crown, and the other parties just sat back and gone, no, we'll win because we're us, and, and, and then failed to invest. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, we've said before, we like the Constellation class, uh, and some of the other decisions that are being made in terms of specific units and specific technologies. But, you know, what was the US famous for in World War I uh, when it came to naval stuff? Building hundreds upon hundreds of destroyers in a couple of years, the Wixes and the Clemsons. Yeah, what was the and US they were fa- good destroyers. Yeah. And what was the US famous for in World War II? Churning out Fletchers and Essexes and Baltimores and Clevelands and who knows Liberty what else. Liberty ships, yeah. Liberty ships, escort carriers, submarines, apply the bucket load. Yeah, because they had the infrastructure. And where they didn't have or the, infrastructure, built the infrastructure. Yeah, exactly. Where they didn't have the infrastructure, they built them. But they built it. So it's like, you know, when they said, well, we don't have the shipyard capacity to keep up with the number of escort carriers we need. Okay, we'll go and build an entire escort carrier building shipyard in the middle of war and not only build the shipyard, but also build the ships in the newly completed shipyard in time to have an actual meaningful effect on the war. And now... You know, what, 10, 10, 15 years ago, the Chinese Navy, let's face it, was a bit of a joke in global terms. Um, Now they're far from it. And what additional infrastructure has been opened in the US to cope with it? That's it at the moment, though. This is the Mm -hmm. trouble. If we look at, I had this honest debate, I think it was, I was. 18 at the time mm-hmm. uh no 19 because of my uh, 19 and because i remember because i was at a meeting at Ruzi, and my dad was there and he was still not talking with the family and he kept avoiding and going out of the room of whichever room i was in and i'd been invited along because well i was a second year naval historian and Michael Partridge had got me in there I don't know how he got me in there he was my supervisor at the time but he just gone right Alex come with me and I ended up having the debate and there was someone honestly saying that we should actually reduce the size of the Queen Elizabeths because then we have more dry docks that we could use to support them and I was sitting there going, well, actually, doesn't that suggest that the dry docks we've got are too small and we should start building them up? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, that'd be too expensive. Yeah. Well, it's, I think I'm going, You're telling me that even you have just said to me that the most effective and efficient design of aircraft carrier we can build for our needs is the size of the Queen Elizabeth class we are planning. 
But in the next breath, you then tell me that actually that's too big because of the dry dock. So you should want to go from less efficient and less capable design because it can fit in more dry docks. And your reason for that is despite the fact we are already spending billions of pounds going to on an aircraft carrier program, you don't want to spend a lot of hundreds of millions of pounds or possibly even less on building up some dry docks. In fact, basically what I'm saying is you take two of the existing dry docks, two of the existing graving docks, and you extend them. So we have at least three graving docks which can take them. And you, you sit there and go, what are you? You're, again, you're trying to maintain an image on a budget rather than an actual effective military at that point. Um, I mean, how, how many how many times have has, have ideas been floated as to how the U.S. could, you know, increase its its naval presence? Um, whether that be building more nuclear powered aircraft carriers? Oh wait, you only have one dockyard capable of doing that. You had more than one capable of doing that. You downsized and scrapped the rest of them. And then the solution, and then when it's like, well, maybe you should, you know, build more. Oh no, well, with the, the current doctor's working at maximum capacity. So reopen the second one. Oh no, we can't possibly do that. Why? Have you seen the price tag of the USS Ford? I'm pretty sure you could reopen. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you could reopen another dry dock. I'm sure the money's there somewhere. And this and, is and the point. You're already spending this money. It's like. The, the amount of people I've got turning around to me and telling me with the Ajax tank program mm. that we can't change for it because you already sunk too much money in it. I'm sitting there going, you're literally telling me that of every single chassis we've got, not a single one matches either with the other side of the chassis or another chassis. It's a sunk cost fallacy, but it's sort of the reverse one. You've, 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 you've already sunk this money into this infrastructure, so you can't put more into it? Yeah, and, uh, and you build we, this infrastructure. We've also, I mean, we've discussed it previously about th you know things like um, like putting maybe maybe if, if okay fine if you don't want to build if, well if you don't want to build more nuclear powered carriers because you don't want to open another nuclear carrier sized dockyard. Well, we've said well maybe build a Queen Elizabeth sized carrier build some light carriers to take the pressure off we've gone through that in quite a bit of detail in previous episodes and oh we don't have the dockyards we don't have the slipways to do that you do what is like like either extend some slightly or build some new ones it's it's not rocket science <laughs> um and instead you bet you basically end up with a situation where people up to and including the US Navy and various US politicians sitting there going, yeah, well, we need more ships, but we don't have the infrastructure to build more ships. So we're not going to build more ships, but we're going to complain about not having enough ships <laughs> until the Chinese show up with many ships. And then we're going to complain that it's somebody else's fault and we should have built the infrastructure 20 years ago. It's like, yeah, you mean like everyone else has been telling you? <laughs> I mean, well, it's e even the French. Okay, so yeah. We, we're well, two of us are British, so I, there's some kind of genetic predisposition in there to have a go at the French. 
Um, and Jamie so, is German Australian, so also there is some pre there is a predisposition there to hate the French as well. But, he might not yeah. admit it, but they do like to attack the French as well. So, um, so bear in mind when I say even the French, I don't mean this in a pejorative way to the to the French particularly, but you know. And surprisingly enough, I will admit this: we do actually have quite a large number of French listeners. I, yeah. I, I I'm, I'm not sure how, considering how rude we are. It's like we have like a large number of you. German listeners. Mm. Um, but, 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 the th- but the thing is, right? It, at the, in the first half of the 20th century, the French Navy also had an infrastructure problem. Um, much like the British, they had lots of old established dockyards and they were perfectly good for building ships of the line or early ironclads. But as ships had gotten larger and we got into the era of dreadnoughts, the dockyards and slipways and graving docks and dry docks weren't large enough. And if they followed the American pattern, they would have, at the moment, they would have turned around and said... Yeah, well, dreadnoughts are all well and good, but, you know, we don't have a big enough slipway, so we're just going to keep building pre-dreadnoughts. Or or eventually, once the uh, Saint-Nazier dock was built, they would have said, well, we can build one per every three or four years. So And, and that's it. So thanks for coming, but that's all we're going to do. And it's like, no, the, the, the French realised this, and they built more infrastructure, unhelpfully the size of battleships kept increasing, so they kept having to upgrade it, the dry docks and so forth every every sort of five or ten years, which they didn't particularly like, but they still did it, and they came up with innovative solutions. So when they realised, that, for example, that they didn't have enough slipways to build the uh, Richelieu's at the rate that they wanted to build them, they ended up building 90% of a Richelieu, I think, or something close to that, on the slipway and built the bow and stern sections off in separate bits. And then once they'd launched the main hull, they just attached the, the remaining parts because it wouldn't all fit on, on the original slipway. You know, modularity in design <laughs> back in the 1930s. So given that, the, let's face it, battleships of that period were not really designed to be modular. If the French could manage that to build Richelieu's in the 1930s and these days capital ships are specifically built in a modular form what exactly is stop like even if you don't want to open new shipyards and infrastructure our, our carrier program was based on modular construction build, in the build, UK. build, build 90, 80 or 90 percent of a carrier in a slightly smaller dock float it out and attach the other two modules it's yeah. It's not. It's all been done before, and, and this it is why it loops back to what I was saying before. It's like, are you taking any of this seriously, or have you really drunk the Kool Aid to the point that you believe that everything will magically go away because Murray? I think, I think it, it's more the it, fact it, that you're um you're, you're it gets the higher echelons of magic, management. At, it gets worse when you start to look at the when the last things were done. It's like Britain again. You talking about the French uh, again? Mm. Britain in nineteen. 19- for 1912, I think it is, um, Churchill is presenting a naval estimate and is being challenged by Lord Charles Beresford. And they're arguing away. And Beresford's basically going, we do not have enough dry docks for these ships. And, and but Churchill responds, 
we are currently we are going to have nine in this country we are building them and this is this round of expansion the next round of expansion of dry docks is going to take place in 1916 to accommodate the next generation and then there'll be another one another one in 1920 because you have to upgrade the dry docks pretty much every four years to deal with the new generation of expanding battleships and expanding battle cruisers and it's all in hansard and it's 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 a lovely naval estimates to make and you sit there and go that's amazing but good God, even Churchill got the infrastructure argument. And, and planning beyond the next two years. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and it's you, you sit there and you go back and you start looking, you go, Britain, when did we last upgrade or do a major upgrade of our graving docks and our dry docks? When do you think it was? In the 1930s? Yeah. Which year? Uh, 38. Close. Go a bit earlier. <laughs> 36. You've gone too far. <laughs> okay. 37 yeah we upgraded them we made them bigger so we could deal with what was projected to be the lion class yeah and then the thing is you know it, it's not all sunshine and roses you, things like hood or the g3s were designed to a certain degree with size limitations in mind in terms of you know gibraltar and malta's dry docks and everything yeah, but uh, Hood couldn't fit in many most of them. But the, but, <laughs> there many dry docks that Hood could fit in. <laughs> but the point is, design. Th there was a certain amount of design compromise that they'd make, but they wouldn't go below a certain amount. It was it was basically, can we support this ship at points across the world? Okay, fine. Well, and then someone bright spark and went, well, if we make it fifty foot shorter, we can get it into more. And they turned around and said, no. Uh, I mean, you, you look at pictures of Hood being built. That's another innovative solution when it comes to if your if your slipway is too small. They just built Hood's bow out over the rest of the dockyard. It kind of you look at pictures yeah. of it on the slipway. The, the bow is quite literally wedged into a bunch of buildings across a, several track lines of light railway, well past where the slipway actually ends. Um, but you know, in it works. Yeah, so innovative problems require innovative solutions. So there are ways to do this. If they you're also, actually serious if, about about doing it, and and I mean, it even comes back to things like you know, go all the way back to HMS Victory. Um, I believe it was Victory, or possibly one of the other first trade ships. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Victory. They had the thing ready to go out the dock gates. They discovered the dock gates were too narrow, so overnight they got a team of carpenters and carved the dock gates wider <laughs> so that the ship <laughs> could get out. It, they didn't turn around and say, "Oh well, you yeah, know, we shouldn't have built that. I guess it's just going to have to sit in the in the preparation pond for the rest of eternity." Um, and uh, mm. I, I mean, to, to a degree, I was kind of looking at that when, when I saw a program about the launch of the Queen Elizabeth class, you know, just how little space there is getting those things out of the, the, yes. um, the yeah. gates of where they were built. And I was looking at it going, okay, I, I, I do appreciate that you've designed it literally almost down to the inch and it's, it's taking the world's most precise set of uh, guidance to get the thing out, but really, it's a concrete dock with a gate in it. Considering we spent three billion pounds on this thing, I'm pretty sure you could pay like Yanislav down the road for four <laughs> days with him and his mates with some jackhammers <laughs> just to break up some of that concrete and widen the blasted thing. <laughs> yeah, that, you see this thing, and they also get, they also made a big thing about having a lowering mast mm. so they can get underneath the bridge. They sit there and go, "That's great," but. Are you saying that pretty much you've designed these ships so they can fit into that dry dock because that's going to be the only dry dock they're ever going to go into? 
Yes. Because in that case, why haven't you widened the freaking gates? <laughs> yes. So it's um... But, um on the hood thing, there is actually I actually know a little bit of a story about that one because of the work I've been doing for my shipyard and infrastructure video series, which I've been doing. And um, what they actually uh, they actually turned around and did was they were said there wasn't enough space at Malta, and they said, well, actually, no, we've got a floating dry dock that if we uh, modify and improve and do some work on, that can pick up hood. And so that's why she went to Malta a lot for her refits because they had a floating dry dock which could actually get her out the water. Lift her up, right? Yeah. You sit there and go, again, to the US Navy, uh, if you don't want to build a graving dock, if you if you don't like the idea of laying down that much concrete, how about building a new floating dry dock? Well, just, just a brief thought. You know those ships that they use to recover broken down slash damaged warships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, used in uh, delivering um, oil rigs and, and the likes. One wonders how much time they spend sitting up against a wharf doing nothing when they could be being used as a ad hoc floating dock. Surprisingly, those things are usually barely busy because, again, this is infrastructure problems. There are not enough to actually deal with demand. Uh, always the way. Yeah. So, uh, so basically, just, the in, just in time, just in the, time the, delivery. the companies which run them, I, I, I swear, make sure they never have more than enough to meet demand so that they can charge a premium for their service because they are always the thing which delays any project yes. because their availability. There is never enough of those to go around. And you should see the premiums navies have to play when they pay when they have to pick up their ships because it's an emergency unscheduled. It's just astronomical. It's almost cheaper to build a new freaking warship than send the thing out to pick them up. Yeah, well, although that does raise another issue when it comes to infrastructure of um, why exactly is this being outsourced privately? Again, it's like, oh, yes, we'll reduce costs by making sure critical portions of emergency naval infrastructure are in private hands and therefore we have to pay absolutely stupid premiums every time we have to go out and and a ship needs rescuing instead of oh i don't know have one yourself so that you can have it on your back and call whenever you need and also and you since, can or you can have a nato the... one if you exactly. want to like we do with the submarine rescue service yeah as, as jamie know, have was a saying, NATO one. As, as jamie was saying you can then rent it out to all the private ship owners who managed to smash their ships aground. So you might, you know, you might even make money off of it. But heaven forbid anyone suggesting an armed forces that might actually, you know, turn a profit in one or two areas. <laughs> yeah, but no, no, no. This gets worse because there's, then you've got, this is the argument I end up having with a lot of people. So I go, right, so we've privatised our dockyards and the idea was they could make money from doing other work for other navies and other nations so they would be able to run as a profit and therefore that would reduce costs for us. But unfortunately, because we've reduced the infrastructure so much, we are entirely dependent on that yard. So they basically, we are now their sole customer. So we have actually increased our costs because we are not only paying all the costs for running the yard and all the money that they require to keep it going, we're also paying their profit margin. In nicest way, na- nationalised dockyard was far more sensible under those circumstances. You know, it, we've got the frigate repair facility and all sorts of things in the UK, which literally exists to support the Royal Navy alone. 
And yet they are run by a for-profit company, which I do not mind for-profit companies. I support them. They're great. They help the economy. They allow people to invest. And that's all sorts of wonderful things and help pension funds and all those things. But it seems to be freaking stupid to actually, as a government, set up a for-profit monopoly that controls your defence infrastructure. Unless, of course, uh, the politician who set it up happens to have a uh, pre-warm seat as director the minute they're out of politics. Don't get me started <laughs> on that one. The amount of civil servants, admirals, generals and politicians who end up on those it's, it's, freaking boards is absolutely absurd. It's a similar problem over here as well. It's, it's ludicrous. <sighs> and I'm sure it's one of the causes of, of these problems. Also, the new trick, by the way, and this is just for everyone else, everyone listening, if you haven't heard this one. So they don't get hired onto the board anymore. No, no, no. They set up a consultancy firm when they finish, yes. and their consultancy mm. firm gets hired. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. means they, A, don't have to reveal their clients to their consultancy firm, because that's covered by commercial confidentiality. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And B, the company doesn't have to admit that they're employing them, because they, that also is commercial confidentiality, and they're not on the board of directors. Yeah, you, you know, one of the funniest and dash most depressing headlines I saw in the past few months was, I think this was just after we had our artificially media-created petrol crisis. Um, oh, yes, that was fun. Yeah, you know, one of these um, headlines was, you know, we, um, whenever something goes wrong in this country, people call f- to, to send in the army. And then the <laughs> argument was, we should stop sending in the army because... That uh, basically the gist of the argument was if we, whenever we send in the army, things actually get done, and that might give people the idea that maybe the military should be in charge because they actually accomplish things that the politicians and everybody, the private <laughs> companies can't do. And I'm sitting there going, if your own management skills as a bunch of private companies who theoretically are trying to actually do something in exchange for money to make profit, and as a government, you know, national organizational efforts, etc. If your efforts are so utterly inept and terrible that getting the army in, and no disrespect to the army, you know, they're, they are very professional, but the yeah. army is also not really known for its mass fuel transit training or firefighting training or... Um, well, I, on the mass or, fuel transit training, I would say the Royal Logistics Corps is pretty good at moving stuff. Can I, yeah, can I just at, interject here for a moment? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so hauling fuel makes sense firefighting mm-hmm. makes sense for an army here's the latest proposal from the australian defense minister oh god we're going to be depressed he wants to send the army into our nursing homes because we're suffering a nursing home staff shortage <laughs> that'll end well you'll have oh, many, many, fewer, <laughs> many many fewer people in the nursing home after the the sergeant drill sergeant major tries waking everyone up at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> I, I mean, it'll reduce oh, costs. It's an inventive. But, oh. but, but I mean, no, seriously, it's like you know, the army. The thing is, you've got these supposed professionals and these supposed politicians that we supposedly elect to do these jobs. And then the army that has tangentially related skills, but not is not directly trained in these skills, turns up and does a better job than the people who are supposedly so, making money off of it. Can you tell me what those tangentially tra- uh, tangentially applicable skills are for nursing homes? Um, I'm presuming the battlefield medics are going to get a lot of work. <laughs> As if they don't have enough. Nice this way. And again, 
when was the last time geriatric medicine was a core part of Battlefield Medic's training? I think, I think the main application would be shooting the media that tries to come along to reveal the conditions <laughs> in the uh, federally government-run nursing homes because it's been embarrassing enough for the government for the past few yeah, years. Well, I, I, I think, okay. I, I think the, the fundamental issue comes down to when you send the army in to do a job, usually it's almost like a point-and-click interface saying, right, army people, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it. And most of the time in professional militaries, they go, oh, okay, and they go off and do the thing. And, and the thing happens. Whereas when it comes to private companies or governmental agencies, you say, okay, we need to go on and do the thing. And then they're like, oh, yes, but before we do the thing, uh, we need to, we need to um, get like six different consultancy firms in and we need to fill in this diversity and equality statement because, um, you know, uh, in case we're worried about the the, the identity, the, how the fuel truck yeah, identifies please, itself. Please the lo- various lobby groups, and yeah. not to mention hired uh, government lobbyists. Yeah. And we've got we've got to carefully rig everything so that you know, using the fuel thing as an example, we've got to care- make sure we carefully rig everything so that the uh, insert political party here that is currently in power, the you know the councils dominated by those political parties get the fuel shipments more than the. Uh, the, the counties that have opposition run councils and all of this nonsense and the whole thing just gets bogged down in pointless bureaucracy um and and, and greed to be honest because let's face it, it uh, where there were one or two very small shortages it was actual genuine shortages not caused by panic buying it was largely down to the the fuel truck driver saying, you know, we, we drive 14 hours a day in horrific conditions on a tanker full of liquid explosive. Um, we'd like to be paid a little bit more than minimum wage, please. And some idiot CEO sitting there in his like six million pound third townhouse turning around going, no, oh, no, we can't have the, the, the peasants asking for an extra pound an hour. I won't oh, be able to afford caveat 365 days a year. This was the entire crisis of lorry drivers in the UK, and I can I will take you through the point. So, about twenty years ago, we used to have a very good training program in the UK for lorry drivers, an apprenticeship scheme and training program. It got slowly cut and cut and cut because they could hire people from around Europe and around the world. Which is not look. There is I am not. This is not the anti an anti immigration speech or anything like that. That's good. People should be able to move around. But they didn't. They stopped. Used it as excuse to not invest in the UK. And then the trouble is the UK drivers got older and older and older and they didn't have new ones. And then you had COVID hit and all that stuff. And suddenly they couldn't get these drivers because they'd gone home or they're gonna. And the older UK drivers who were supposed to be doing all the driving found that they could get paid more going and working for Sainsbury's or Tesco's doing the local delivery runs. So suddenly they lost the older drivers who all went, we've got the experience, we're going to get more pay going working for Sainsbury's and Tesco's and we'll be home at night and we'll only have to work a, few, a, a far shorter shift for better pay. Well, hey. And they lost the other drivers because due to a combination of things, Brexit, COVID, everything, mainly COVID, they'd gone home. And you sit there and go, and then they go, we've got a driver shortage. We don't know how this has happened. And you look at them and go, well, the pay you've been giving the drivers is absolutely terrible. You've not been training any new drivers, and and you've just been hiring people who are already qualified or who have to go and pay to get themselves qualified which is very expensive in the UK. 
Yeah, that reminds. And, that, now you've got no one. It's that, no surprise. That remind that reminds me of um, uh, of back way 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 back um, after I um, lost my first engineering job because of the credit crunch of two thousand eight two thousand nine. Um, one of the alternate careers I looked at was becoming a police officer because you know we're almost always critically short of those. Yeah. Um, so I thought right, I'll, I'll apply to become a police officer because I happen to live at the time about 750 metres south of the catchment zone for the Met Police. I wasn't allowed to apply for them because I didn't live in the area. I was like, I, I, I'm this literally a five minute walk to the edge of your patrol zone, but never mind. So I had to apply for Surrey Police. So I Quite strange for... because actually my neighbour who lives opposite me actually works for Met Police as does the, the other three yeah, in the well, row of policemen. The, the, all the policemen who live in my road must work have moved Met. afterwards. Yeah, probably moved yeah. right out afterwards. But anyway, so I, I had to apply for Surrey Police, which, okay, fine, whatever. Doesn't make too much odds to me. Um, and I applied for Surrey Police. Oh, no, sorry. You, you, um, we've decided arbitrarily that you need this random qualification, uh, um, college-level qualification that we just made up okay i have a university degree does that not because basically what you're asking for is do you have proof that you're smart because there's a whole training thing once you actually get accepted in the police force and like, no this we, you have to have this particular bit of qualification uh, yeah mbq I think it was like an mbq level three at the time okay yeah. fine where do i go and do that oh right well we have partnered um translate <laughs> been bribed by two educational centers out of all the nvq qualified ed educational centers in the whole of surrey so you must go and do it there okay how long is it it's six months okay um, oh and by the way it's also going to cost you two and a half grand and okay so if i could if i pay my two and a half grand out of money that i don't have because i don't have a job and i then basically do six months education for free because i won't get job seekers allowance either because they'll say no you're in a paid education course you can't have your jsa um so with all this money and time i don't have and i complete this course does this mean that i get to actually you know it, then i i can become a policeman oh no 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 you you need to have that for us to consider your cv <laughs> and people wonder why we're short of police and I should point out that actually in Surrey is one of the police horses which is suffering most at the moment by being very short of police. Yeah, people, we, they wonder why we're short of police and they wonder why why the... the, um, the they also wonder the... why Drac has quite so many weapons. <laughs> they wonder why the, the, the police force is made up of a, a non-diverse, non-inclusive um, group of people. Well, yeah, it turns out that basically unless you happen to have literally nothing to do for half a year and you've got someone who'll stump up room accommodation um and transport in the middle of surrey which isn't exactly the world's cheapest place yeah our police force had the load of poshistic accents have mm. been even posher accents than mine yeah. plus plus uh, plus surrey. the money for all your education requirements then you can't actually become a policeman so yeah brilliant <laughs> um it's yeah it's it, it's just an absolutely ludicrous situation and it's reflected in 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 every in a lot of other things. It's like you're starting to sound like a bunch of old men. We are. Yeah, speak for yourself. We're historians. Right. We're born old. <laughs> Thank, thanks to denial, I'm still eighteen. <laughs> um, but uh, I, no, I was told I'm born. I was born fifty. My body's just catching up. But the the, the, the general point 
that we're getting at is like if if the army with its it, its core training is able to branch out and do all this other stuff much more efficiently because they just get on and do it that's not an argument for not using the army that's an argument for everything else that you're doing sucks so maybe you should actually get with the program instead of just whining about the fact that other people are better than you <laughs> i think the trouble is and i this is going to sound strange there are people and colleagues of mine who blame the MBA culture. And I say it's not the MBA culture that's the problem, Martin Business Administration, mm. etc. It's the way the MBA has been designed and developed. Because the MBA is basically, as, as I see many of the courses, obsessed with the accountancy side of the, mm -hmm. of the MBA and obsessed with the actual spreadsheet, not the reality. They look at everything through the spreadsheet. Well, that's where the tax dodges are. Yes, but it's also it, it's a, it, the, the trouble is don't care if the company is doing the well, idea as long as you can fleece it for, through a bunch of tax loopholes. The just-in-time logistics and all these things mm. that they look good on a spreadsheet mm. because of the cost, but it it doesn't look good once you start actually being realistic and looking at things. Yeah, but realism realism is for realism is for losers. What you everyone everyone these days is all about the short term thinking. Fleece the company, run it into the ground, but you've made a couple of million, run away into the sunset and repeat the process. You know, who actually okay. cares if no one can get food or fuel? That's not vital. Let's let's consider what is one of the most successful companies in the world at the moment is Amazon. Okay. Well, they I mean, are, slavery was also a part. Let's keep our um, let's keep our service center uh, open during the middle of a hurricane, not hurricane, tornado. Um, tornado. I, I understand yeah. all that, and I will accept all that. <sighs> but they're also one of the few companies which really doesn't sign up to just-in-time logistics. If you no, look at the way they, they have... stock their warehouses, etc., yeah. they always try and, and you sit there and go, uh, you sit there and go, okay, people always us, they're saying that the only way for our companies to be popular to be successful is with just-in-time logistics. And you go, really? The most of the large, one of the largest companies in the world, one of the most successful companies in the world, does the exact opposite of just-in-time logistics. In fact, their entire their entire business model is built on it's just in time getting to you, but we have it in stock. And I mean, never mind the fact that 95% of all the implementations of just-in-time in the business world these days are complete mutants that bear no resemblance yeah. to the actual working theory of just-in-time logistics. Oh, that's, yes. That's all of the discussion. It, it's used as a catchphrase um, rather than the reality. But, but, but also, looping back to what we were saying earlier about HGV drivers, which, believe it or not, does have relevance to naval history and uh, modern naval stuff. Um, you know, back when I was doing training um my engineering training and then later on was in professional development in the field uh, at one point i did a very extensive course on accident analysis to work out which basically meant uh, teaches you to work out and analyze not just what's happened with this accident but to look at patterns and the road layout and to work out you know over five years there's been this many accidents look at the situation what why are these accidents happening and how to fix it so it's quite complex and that involves you know looking at the individual incidents and one of the things that is held quite high in quite high regard across the engineering world when it comes to this kind of thing is if you have a bunch of witness statements about what happened and one of them's from an hgv driver you should probably believe what the hgv driver says if everything else conflicts because hgv drivers are actually highly trained professionals who know what they're doing and are on the roads an awful lot of the time 
as opposed to, you know, Nadine from Six Doors Down, who probably drives her kids to school every day and is probably responsible for the accident in the first place because she decided that actually, you know, priority junctions means she has priority whatever arm she's on. And uh, names have been changed, but when I worked at Croydon Council, that was genuinely an, a complaint letter I got in because we were res apparently responsible for this lady's car being hit because, it, to quote her words, I pulled out of the junction and the cars that were on the main road didn't give way to me. <laughs> you, you know, despite the give way markings and the stop sign that you went through. Yes, oh, I well, we are responsible for this <laughs> stupidity. I I have to say I've had a similar case because I had an insurance company when I was a newly qualified driver mm. and a car pulled out across two lanes onto a main road into the fast lane and hit me in the side. Mm -hmm. And they tried to say, well, that must be your fault because you're the young driver. And I went, two lanes, traffic going along, pulled out of side road, smashed into me. It, it, um, it, it took the police reports, it took video footage, it took everything for them to not try and say it was my fault. And this was my own insurance company. They were just preemptively accepting fault on my behalf when it wasn't my fault. Yeah. And, the, and, and when the other driver was even saying it wasn't my fault. And the, and the point that I'm trying to get across with, with this is that, you know, in, in that particular case, okay, so HGV drivers within an, in, within an professional industry and an industry which is looking at how to save people's lives because that's what uh, the accident analysis and road design element of it is all about um acknowledges that hgv drivers are, are incredibly well-trained professionals that should be taken seriously but the execs who run the companies that employ the hgv drivers treat them like a medieval lord treats their peasants. In fact, actually, I think a bunch of medieval lords probably treated their peasants better because otherwise the peasants would rise up and stab them, which is... Or they'd have an accident while out yeah, riding in the forest. Unfortunately looked down upon these days. Um, Unless you're French. Let's be honest, the French have got a very interesting history of what they do to CEOs. They don't <laughs> yes, like. this is true. They like... Yeah, but, um, you know... Uh, and, certain heads of Peugeot, I think, were, uh, uh, have had... Um, <laughs> bad experiences and then so you, you treat your highly trained professionals poorly and then you're shocked and surprised when they go off and do other things and this all loops back to what we were originally talking about with naval infrastructure because not only do a lot of nations these days refuse to invest in the naval infrastructure but they also refuse to actually invest in the people um yeah. and and that's that that's when we, and that that's well i suppose we're talking in terms of human infrastructure at that point because yeah. um, as something i've actually had confirmed by multiple people who've been served either in the current navy or in the navies of the past 40 50 years uh, a good example is nuclear trained technicians which um depending Are on rare as hen's teeth and expensive yeah it depends on depending on exactly uh, what happens with the new submarine program jamie and uh, <laughs> might ha have to have a no it's not going to happen it's, it's, it's a pure fantasy it's a pure fantasy but um but no the thing is uh, the, the single biggest source of trained nuclear technicians uh in the western world is actually the royal french and u.s navies because royal of french navy <laughs> sorry the royal <laughs> navy the yeah. yeah but um yeah because they've all got nuclear powered ballistic missile subs they've all got nuclear powered attack subs you need multiple nuclear trained and qualified engineers to operate them and of course in the french and american cases you also have nuclear powered aircraft carriers so you're taking in people you're training them in an incredibly specialist incredibly technical skill 
and then you don't pay them all that much and then you're shocked when at their end of they're at the end of the term of service they go off into the civilian world where they can sit behind a desk in a nice safe land-based nuclear reactor and basically when they walk in even in the states which has notoriously poor worker relations they can basically walk into the ceo's office the day of their discharge and go i'm a fully trained nuclear technician i want to be paid this much i want these benefits and i only want to work these days and um, by the time they've finished speaking they've already got a signed document being thrust back across the desk because they're incredibly valuable and skilled people but the navies tend to go hmm, no we, we, we will we shall pay you barely more than everybody else wait where are you going come back uh i can testify that to that as well because i actually have a couple of those four of those people uh four ones as my students who are now doing masters in at the university one of the universities i teach at and uh, they're actually american ones and they came over to the uk because they might prefer the british masters program to the american one and the reason they've come to their masters is because the company is actually paying for them and paying for them to the uk far away from the reactors they're going to work up so they can go up and they can uh, go up the business uh, go up the ladder and get more and be certified even more and you sort of sit there and go so the company is paying you to go to another country paying for your degree paying for all your costs associated with your travel, even though you're going to be doing no work for them during the year you're here because you're over in the UK studying for the full year. That's an American company. That's not something they normally do. That's, that, that's quite excessive. And yeah, they don't, and they're all former oh, US Navy. It's that level. That, 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 it's, it's the level of, of expertise. It's, um, oh. you know, uh, unfortunately... It is recognised at that level, um, but it's not recognised at other levels, I suppose. But this, I mean, you know, the other problem is, of course, how long are you going to ret retain those poor old Australian army soldiers who get assigned to the um, nursing home duty? About five um, minutes. You know, can you can you imagine them um, maintaining or, or sustaining their um, military school skills in the service? Um, after being assigned to something as abstract as that. Um, it's you know, either that or you're going to strip we, out we the medics them. of every single unit, which makes them practically undeployable. Because you're going to be saying, if you're sending them to any operation, you're going to have no medics. Now, the only thing I can think of at that point is maybe take all the um, senior staff adjutants and move them, move them into the duty, because they've already got plenty of care tape looking after geriatric people who spout <laughs> off randomly with no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> there goes your chances for a promotion. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing I've got in the military. <laughs> yes. oh, dear. All right, I suppose we better stop rumbling. Yes. Uh, yeah, and... well, let's let, let's do a bit of a position shift. I'd like to talk about the um, this new um, border and offshore submersible sentry patrol ship that some genius Russian has come up with. So Russia's reinvented the U-boat. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I'm, it, it's, is it Surkoof? Is it M1? Is it um, X1? But, but, but is, it, is it an idea whose time has finally come? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, the idea of, so what we're talking about here is a submersible, it's not a submarine, mm -hmm. um, that carries surface ship armament uh, on a hull that can... It basically submerged to be to, to be out of sight, out of mind, mm -hmm. 
and you know possibly remove it from one domain of threat for at least a time Ooh. so considering the other areas that we talk about so much on this um podcast of missile threats and and the likes mm -hmm. a, a surface vessel that can just sort of dip underneath the surface when things are looking a bit too hot up top is, is it such a bad idea i'm it's terrible I, I i'm actually quite attracted to the idea to be honest okay i'll um, let you present your argument first and then i'll present mine <laughs> well the, okay. let's, let's, let's run through the history of it first. I mean, yeah. okay, the, the, it hasn't worked well in the past. We know that. No, it hasn't. That doesn't, autom that doesn't automatically mean that it's a bad idea because, frankly, you know, the first aircraft carriers were pretty crap. Yeah. So we're the first aircraft. Yeah. Um, you know, so the, the th things, as technology improves, things that were not capable become ca capable. So... You know, maybe well, that's that time has arrived for this kind of concept. I, I think I think this, the the flaw in previous in most pre, pre, previous iterations, and the, you know there have been one or two that have kind of worked a little bit, is that the vast majority of these previous iterations, when you look at M one, M two, M three, Circuf, X one, and the list goes on, is they have taken a submarine and tried to make it do a surface ship's job. So, so Koof was a submarine that was trying to pretend to be a cruiser. X-1 was a submarine that was trying to pretend to be a cruiser. I-400 was a submarine that was trying to pretend to be an aircraft carrier, etc., etc., etc. Whereas this is approaching it from the, a slightly different angle, where this is a surface ship that is trying to do the minimum function of a submarine which is to fully submerge itself beneath the waves it's not trying to go to great depths it's not trying to maneuver it's not trying to engage ssks and ssns in torpedo warfare although it does have torpedo tubes which i do approve of um okay before you go on, jamie um i the only one who's losing drac who sort of seems to be disappearing in a sort of a halo-ish sort of yeah, vision and this ascending is, this is to a higher it, 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 it's just yeah. disconcerting me okay <laughs> he's reaching a level of buddhist sort of he, he, he just seems to be evolving before my eyes <laughs> you can blame the sun yeah. <laughs> um oh. but yes yeah, so it's it, as i say it's not trying to do the vast 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 majority of submarine duties it's literally only thing is get beneath the waves um and pretty much what you were suggesting jamie i think this is actually a good idea because you know even last episode we were talking about the issues of hypersonic missiles supersonic missiles mass attacks by subsonic missiles and limited engagement times limited mission payloads etc mention drone swarms exactly so you know if you've got a hot bunch of hypersonic missiles coming at you and you don't necessarily have the countermeasures or the um weapons to defend yourself completely you can't guarantee it well hypersonic missiles make awful torpedoes they, they tend to hit the water and then you know, splat yeah <laughs> so if you do have a and if your enemy shooting you know four dozen extremely expensive extremely um limited hypersonic missiles at you well 
if you can then just go, okay, well, I'm just going to sit 20 foot below the water for the next five minutes, and oh, look, you all smashed into the sea and died, and then pop up again. You haven't even expended a single round of ammunition, and your goal. You just run a few pumps for a while. Yeah, and you can do that again and again and again and again. Um, and, you know, yeah, there's potentially a limited threat from an enemy submarine that might come after you, but they're, if you're a purely surface vessel, that threat was there anyway. <laughs> Um, the only... it, it, it's it's it really I mean you know fundamentally it's turning its environment into its protection system mm. it's into its armor system it's it's um again the the, the, the main catch is the technical hurdle the yes. engineering and, and requirements you you will to, have to make a, right. well, you will have a more so... limited payload obviously because you've got to waterproof everything so okay. you know, if you're gonna have a waterproofed hangar pressure-proofed hangar, that's going to take up more space and more weight than a weatherproof hangar and so on and so forth. But let's face it, VLS missile cells are pretty much already almost there. Anyway, I mean, subs have vertical launch missile systems, so yeah. a, a pressure-proof VLS system isn't exactly out of the question. Um, so the the only I... ships would, you'd have issues with, I think, would be carriers, because we know submarine carriers won't work. Okay, so now I'm going to get start off with for starters, before we even get into the whole design product, I'd like to point out the picture. It has the number 101 on the hull, mm -hmm. and it's basically an adapted Zumwalt shaped hull they've gone for to try because uh, they're no. trying to make Russian. No, hang this on, is... hang on. Before you go any further, I'd like to point out that on Twitter earlier, someone pointed to the similarities between this and one of Drac's favorite pre, uh, pre Dreadnought friendships. Mm. As well, I know. But okay, okay. So now what was that? Now, what now ship was going... that? What, what ship was it? I can't remember what it was. Anyway, oh, I'm not. I'm not Probably bringing up. Pre I'm not <laughs> going to bring up the, the French pre-dreadnoughts. I'm not. I just. I don't need that nightmare. Okay, so. This is probably more than likely again more Russian vaporware, but yeah. let's go through this as a thing. Yes, you are quite right. It can duck down and then plop up. But you've got to think about what kind of issues and what kind of constraints are you going to build onto your hull for it to operate like this, for it to do this job. You know, what are your limitations going to be? This one shows it having a helicopter coming off the rear, or at least a UAV. Um, it shows it with various systems fitted in. And you sit there and go, that's all lovely, but I can fit a lot more on a surface hull a lot cheaper. And you can, but then the hypersonic missile blew it up. Yes, but here's the thing. You're worrying about the hypersonic missile, and I can accept that we all worry about the hypersonics, but I worry more about the subsonic cruise missiles for which you can fit some with torpedoes that will drop down. In fact, that's actually quite a... That's, yeah. If you look at some of the next generation, that's becoming quite a standard idea oh, being sure. approached by some nations. And then that just becomes a problem for me because I prefer, if I include it in the subsonics is some which go turn into torpedoes, mm. then... I have no advantage, and I have no chance of shooting them down from under the water. Oh, and I've just made sure my crew definitely die. <laughs> yes, and I mean, yes, and no, because again, it's it's that whole circular argument, isn't it? You, you've by making your ship disappear from a threat environment of traditional crews, traditional ballistic and hypersonic missiles, um, you change the paradigm. Those weapons now have to all change to become. Torpedo dropping weapons. Okay, but the thing great. is, the torpedo they're, dropping weapons already exist. Yeah, but they aren't really, they're, they're nowhere near. And actually, it's the Russians which have them in service. But they're still nowhere near 
the capability of these and the other Chinese who have them in the service. There's still nowhere near the capability or of the, the other anti-service ones. So you know, you've, that they exist, but that they, yeah, that they're sort of in that harpoon category, aren't they? They have range at the moment which aren't exactly isn't exactly useful. I think it's about um, and yeah, there's one which has a range of about four hundred nautical miles, so, which well, is too harpoon, isn't it? So, and but also if they if they're going to be carrying torpedoes, you know, if you're going to carry the missile body, so you've got the you need the fuel and potentially the lifting surface, etc., to carry both the missile itself, its fuel engine, etc., plus the torpedo, which has its own propulsion systems, its own fuel, its own warhead, and so on and so forth, that is inherently a less efficient missile than a simple surface-to-surface -surface or air-to-surface missile. And, and I'd love to see them deliver it on a hypersonic body. Mm. So your, your range and Oh, payload... they couldn't. I, I don't think they could. As, as Drake has exactly. already said, they couldn't deliver exactly. on a hypersonic. Yeah, you're, you're but even... again, I think the obsession here is with the hypersonics, and I don't see them as oh, in the next generation. Supersonics, mass missile subsonic swarm that you don't have physically don't have enough ammunition rounds to... to deal with the thing is if you force if, uh, at the moment surface to surface or air to surface missiles there's multiple different threat paradigms of, of engagement threat that enemies can stack one on top of the other until you you've got big problems whereas a torpedo carrying subsonic missile is going to have to be big it's going to have to be expensive you're not going to have too many of them it's going to be slow compared to all the other threats that are coming around which makes it a much easier target to deal with. And if there's few of Yeah, them, but you're now underwater. Yeah, but if there's few This is the point. If you're forced underwater mm. by the hypersonics that are coming in, and I've got those coming in as part of the subsonic swoon, the swarm, mm -hmm. then frankly, you're underwater. You're not a threat to it. So in nicest way, it's kind of like the whole swordfish paradigm. In nicest way, actually, no, here's the thing. We were talking about a valve-controlled swordfish the, uh, last, mm -hmm. uh, last episode. You brought it, Rosa. Mm. If I can push you underwater... With hypersonics, and then I have a valve. Uh, uh, then I have a little valve-controlled swordfish fly over and drop a torpedo, which is probably cheaper than the missile torpedo. You're sunk. You're gone. Bye bye. That assumes that your torpedo, your torpedo-carrying missile, knows where to drop the torpedo because That's of the range. You can still move. So if you're Moving. Yes, but underwater, this ship is not going to move that fast underwater because it's got a surface-orientated hull. It's not got a subsurface or a subsurface hull, ever. And that's the same problem that you had with submarines prior to World War II, and prior to all the work with the U-class, the Royal Navy did, and prior to the work the Germans did with the Type 21s, etc., was because they had hulls which were orientated for higher speeds on the surface and were slower underwater. This is a hull which is orientated for higher speed on the surface. So once it's underwater, it's not going to be going anywhere fast. But then you do have a lot more options because a torpedo that's dropped off, because you will be moving at some somewhat, so your to the torpedoes will have to be dropped in a pattern. They'll have to be dropped some distance off to make sure they can seek an arm because you can't just drop them straight on straight down because they'll even mm. if you knew exactly where the ship was because they won't arm in time um and torpedoes have a limited amount of speed now granted you've got things like spearfish that can move 70 or 80 knots but that's still glacial compared to the speed of you in a subsonic missile that's moving five six seven times as fast um so you've got more time to engage you can deploy decoys you can deploy um Count active countermeasures. You could, I mean, it could, it could 
it can drive the development of active damage. I mean, this design has four torpedo tubes forward. So um, much as current attempts haven't precisely worked out, it could also drive the development of a, an anti-torpedo torpedo, basically the underwater equivalent of a surface-to-air missile. And if, I mean, it, this is the thing, if, if your possible threats are somebody fires 300 missiles at your battle group, which are a mixture of supersonic, hypersonic, and subsonic, which means that multiple ships are going to die mathematically, or you do this and you've got slightly reduced payload, but you just go, okay, bye, and your threat is now reduced to two dozen torpedo-carrying missiles, then assuming that you've developed an appropriate, as an underwater equivalent of a surface-to-air missile, two dozen threats moving at 40, 50 knots, maybe a bit faster, is a hell of a lot more survivable than 300 threats moving anything from 500 to 4,000 knots. So you, nothing is risk-free, but you're, you're mitigating your overall level of risk. I guess ultimately though, mm. the, the, the clincher mm. is what does this vessel give you? So not just mm. in the ability to hide, get away mm. but you know um does this give you an air warfare destroyer does this give you a anti-submarine vessel does this give you a general purpose escort or does it give you a special operations um you know special missions special operations mm. deployment kind of vessel because uh, because I'd i mean you know say the latter possibly but let's be honest yeah. for the former uh, uh, it's gonna have to have a quite a big hole to have enough missiles and to have mm. the computing power and then of course there's going to be mounting the radar on it and right. how high a radar master are you going to get on that well, yeah again i mean you know, if as we've also discussed plenty of times in the past the potential now for drones to be your radar mast mm. is mm. very very um you know it's it's not far away. In fact, if it's not here, why why it's not here now? I don't know. I mean, plus you've also plus you've also got. But that's the, then going to slow down your sinking now. Unless you're going to cut the umbilical and lose your radar drone. And let's be honest, your radar drone, if it's got a big a big phased array radar on, which is going to is what probably mm -hmm. have to be have enough power, and it's going to be have to be umbilical that's power. True. It's going to be very expensive. So you won't Maybe have many. You, you could just stick a periscope mast up to keep the contact running because it's not exactly like a. So the anti-shipping missile is going to lock onto a, a little whip aerial or something, um, but but I mean no, the other thing is is it can be part of the solution. It's not necessarily the solution because as I say, you're not going to get a submersible aircraft carrier. Fundamentally, it doesn't work, um, but it could be part of the solution because I mean I mean this thing is relatively small. Um, it's a, it's a patrol, a couple of thousand ton patrol craft, um, but. If you think about it, if you've got a fleet and you've got maybe a few big cruisers and some carriers and such, things that can't submerge. It's uh, and... 72 metres long, 1,300 mm -hmm. tons in uh, I think... displacement. This... It's, uh, power yeah. can get up to 21 knots, but its actual speed is 4,000 miles at 10 knots. And as you say, this is fantasy wear. This, yeah, this, this is, is fantasy What we're talking wear, about here is the concept. The, co the concept is would be if your smaller escorts are designed like this, so your most numerous ship class in the fleet, then your hypothetical enemy launches their attack. You've got your fleet strung out trying to defend itself. If you've got lots of the, lots and lots of these 
S, not this particular model, but this kind of concept of small escort, and they could even be automated, um, then these things can be equipped with decoy, proper decoy systems, because obviously you've got things like chaff and flares and so forth. But we know that missiles, A, can be taught to ignore them and they don't work too well. But if you've got an actual vessel that has an onboard you know, radar reflection enhancer, infrared thermal signature enhancer, etc. Something that can make it look like a much bigger, much scarier ship, like a, a cruiser or a carrier. Then, if you if the enemy's launched their wave of missiles at you, and they're looking for cruisers and carriers, and they find three dozen contacts that all look like a cruiser or a carrier, then they're going to split every which way, or they're going to make a try and make a priority call. But if you've got three dozen contacts of which only two are carriers and three are cruisers statistically either you split the missiles across everyone or if the missiles try and figure out which one is which statistically speaking they're more likely to lock onto one of these things than the actual target either way you're reducing the overall number of threats coming in at the ships that can't duck away so then they only need to engage a portion of the incoming missile swarm and when the rest of the missile swarm that's gone after these things shows up at point blank range well it suddenly turns out the target disappears and there was not and there's nothing more to target because they've just ducked under water and then either the majority of or possibly all the enemy missile swarm just goes skidding out over the ocean looking for a target that's no longer there and the maybe dozen or so that actually locked onto the targets you did want you, you, that you really want to preserve like your carriers well, a dozen targets your escorts can deal with. The the two hundred and eighty eight other targets that sailed off into the into Davy Jones' locker, you don't have to worry about. And then, unlike having exped, expendable decoys, which you're not really going to do on an oceanic scale, these things then just pop up again. And can yeah, the but process. couldn't you do that same job cheaper with a uncrewed small surface vessel? Well, I'd make this an uncrewed small. But the thing is that one, two things are one, you can make this uncrewed, and two, um, an uncrewed small surface vessel will still get blown up, which hmm. means it's a one and done. Whereas this, yeah, know, but if it's speedboat side, do you, you can tuck away a lot of them. Can you realistically fit a sophisticated enough decoy suite to make us a, uh, a speedboat look like a carrier? I don't think so. Hmm. Um, and also, you know, who's going to carry the thing because you need the range, the operational range and speed, whereas enhance this concept up to a couple, maybe two, three, four thousand tons. It's a useful small escort with its own weapons payload, etc. Um, and it's guaranteed you've got the, the size to make it an effective decoy, but it's also a reusable one. Um, so where... th threat analysis here, it's being proposed by the Russians. It looks like it might have potential in close in waters, mm -hmm. you know, Barents, um, Baltic, Black Seas, the three Bs. Mm -hmm. um, might well, be more useful there than the open North Atlantic and the Pacific. And also in terms of surprise, to be honest, this particular concept is a patrol ship. In terms of surprise present ships, even if it's not strictly this design, but maybe a slightly larger one or whatever, there is also a certain amount of utility because how many times have you know, how many times do people track ships with things like AIS data or just civilians going, oh, look, a cruiser coming through the Straits of Gibraltar or the Dardanelles or the English Channel or whatever. 
it's all fairly easy to observe these things and every, easy for everyone to predict where they're going to show up because there's only so much you can do if you're moving through a narrow shipping channel and you're a surface warship. Whereas these things, um, or this concept of things, they can just vanish. And the only way that you're going to work out where they are is either if you send out one of your extremely limited and expensive attack submarines to try and find the thing, or um, a dedicated anti-submarine warfare frigate starts doing anti-submarine exercises in the area, neither of which are absolutely guaranteed to find them, but forces a much bigger investment in time and effort, or you know, a maritime patrol aircraft, at least you're forcing them to expend sonar boys, and an, a maritime patrol aircraft can't keep up the kind of escort mission that you see a Type 23 keep shadowing the Russians down the English Channel. So you know, it's, it's another potential avenue of, you know, keeps your enemies on their toes, makes them invest a lot more money in trying to keep an eye on you, and still has a surprise potential as well, because, I mean, whilst it's a very crude measure, if you move away from the frontline combatant due, uh, due to when you're talking more about patrol ship stuff, um, what makes more of an impression on somebody saying, uh, I don't know, let's use the example of the Jersey fishing dispute. What makes more of a, an a, a sort of a shock and awe example saying, oh yes, well, we're going to send a, a an OPV. It'll be there in three days. Um, you know, talk amongst yourselves quietly <laughs> until it arrives. Or completely out of nowhere, no warning, didn't see it coming on radar, didn't see it coming via aerial visual recon, etc. You know, uh, a semi-submersible, even if it is an equivalent of an OPV, just pops up in the middle of the dispute. Just hello. Yeah, you weren't expecting us. Yes, we have a nice big flag flying. Please go away. And you, and you also, you don't know how many of my friends are under there either, because the French commercial fishing fleets are not generally equipped with military-grade sonar. I accept that, but also, how much is that going to cost versus a regular OPV? And we've just been talking about infrastructure issues. The infrastructure to support a submarine is far greater as a submersible OPV than would be to support a normal OPV. And the costs and the requirements. And the thing is, Whilst I want investment in infrastructure, I do, and I'm very passionate for that, there is a reality here that this is a very nice idea, but I can't see it being more than a niche, and I can't see it being as helpful. And I can actually see it being potentially problematic, because if you put a lot of money into this, you might not put into money like things like lasers, etc., which could actually provide a solution. I don't think it'll cost too much to be to be fair, and and sort of leading back on the late again. We're, we're going to get. I'm going to referring you to the Lockheed Martin officers. Well, don't employ them. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, uh, I haven't been to the BAE ones recently, but I'm fairly sure yeah. they're not that different. Get Camel led to build it. <laughs> well, then but, it would work, but you know. Yeah, but I mean, that's uh, because the, Camel leads are cute. The the other thing is you that you also have to factor in when it comes to this kind of thing is. Lean, I say leaning back on the late 19th century example, and it's something we've touched on before, there is a, an issue with everyone trying to make everything general purpose, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, something mm. that keeps popping up again. Um, whereas if you look at... And in you the can't do that on a limited size hull. No, but if you look at the, at the late 19th century Navy, so 
you know, the Royal Navy in particular, but also some of the others, you have a huge range of different ships designed for different purposes. So you have little things that, like avisos or gunboats, etc., that your point present ships. And then if you, if, so it's taking a step back a little bit before the first, second and third class cruisers, um, you know, if, if somebody's ignoring the gunboat or the gunboat doesn't feel that they're, that they're big enough and nasty enough to, to um, maintain order, you have things like composite sloops. Now, the core of the Navy is the, the big ironclads, Dreadnought, Devastation, um, Alexandra, etc. But most of the day-to-day -day stuff is being done by little composite sloops like Gannett um, mm -hmm. and all the other wonderfully seabird-named ships. Condor. Um, yeah, but, there, but there's even an intervening bit between those two. So if effectively, your, your Gannett equivalent, your composite sloop equivalent is your APV. Your Type 45, your Type uh, 26, etc., is your, your big ironclad equivalent. But in between there, you have your overseas ironclads, your overseas cruisers, etc., who have the ability to just pop up out of nowhere, completely unbidden. They've got a bit more firepower. They've got a bit more protection. They're basically instead they they for, they force your enemy to either escalate to full on naval confrontation with the battle fleets, in which case, like, okay, that's fine. Well, we'll win that because we also have a big battle fleet backing us up, or back off in a circumstance where they would probably force the issue if it was just your your composite sloop. Um, and these could fit that kind of niche role because. All, well, it's not even to be honest, Nishra, because that's their peacetime role. Their peacetime role is to pop up unexpectedly and scare the living daylights out of people because it forces them to double down or quit. And then in wartime, those kind of long distance overseas cruisers form a, a secondary backup to the main battle line. Um, in back in those days, it would be for towing purposes, for distant gunfire support and recon. And these days, if these these things are sitting in between your OPVs and your full battle line ships. They're serving, as mentioned, as kind of a, the missile, the reusable missile decoys and a little bit of extra fire support. The only issue is that, go loop, uh, looping back to what we were saying right at the beginning of everything, you actually have to pay for the capability. They also don't look to be uh, terribly resilient. No, but to be honest, not much is against something coming in at mm. Mach 7. <laughs> no, or well, not even... even... Yeah, well, we, we all saw what the Exocets did, didn't we? So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I guess it's a point. But, um, even, you know, you bump into a shipping container. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> it looks a bit fragile. It's uh, interesting. But look, I mean, it's, it's an example of, you know, out of the box, out of the square thinking. And... It's one of those things where, as I said, you know, we saw these the historic attempts to build this kind of vessel fail because the technology wasn't up to it. Um, that you know they <coughs> simply couldn't live up to the idea because the engineering wouldn't work. But now, you know, uh, you don't need to try and strap a twelve-inch cannon onto the onto your submarine. Yeah, and as and and as I said before, it's also a case of you know, you you we're basically doing a surface ship with submersible capabilities, not a submarine that's pretending to be a surface ship. And, and things, things like things. drones would probably 
you know, um, solve a lot of the technical problems that you've mentioned. You know, you, you can you can submerge, you could you could um, slip under the water while your drones do all your scouting about on the surface. And we've seen, you know, uh, contracts being awarded this week for um, development of drones that can go from underwater, you know, mm. um, amphibious drones, not amphibious, um, you know, dual environment, sea and air drones be, to be produced. Um, so it, 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 it provides, I would imagine, a very useful surveillance um, platform. Um, and as I said before, possibly covert operations. Um, and yeah, it, I don't know. It, again, does it give you, it, it, is it better just to build a better submarine? Would you, is it, are you better off spending the money that you would spend on developing and building these in improving your submarine fleet? Because why can't they launch drones? And why can't they have um, anti-submarine, anti-torpedo, tubes why, why can't they do most of the things that you're talking about here um i suppose the big problem is you don't really want to surface your submarine because that's so expensive as a presence vessel but when it comes to peer-on-peer -peer conflict um i probably want a submarine yes it's it's one of those things you seem there looking at looking this and um, i can see the points you're making but I'm sitting there thinking, would I not be better off with actually having, because again, Drac makes this point about having the specialist ships. Am I better off having a fleet of this, or am I better off having a fleet of submarines? Maybe even having submarines that do have the option of nuclear submarine, which could uh, have the things built into it so it can be used to surface, or at least project a mass up on the surface to project that sort of radar image and spoofing as you discussed and especially if it's got nuclear power and it's just sticking a mast up it can do that very easily and chump out a lot of energy to make the return or make it look like a cruiser or a aircraft carrier and having a cruiser to have the actual missiles is that a better use of my money than having a ship which can is not going to have the missile capability and the numbers and the, the hull space of a what cruiser for the cruiser role, or the you know be actually as good in the submarine role for the summer as a submarine? What, what we need is a modern technology version of your um, admirals game, so we can build this thing Ooh. and put it out there and see how it goes. Because I mean, ultimately, this could end up being just another hybrid aircraft carrier battleship idea. Where the compromises just make it unfeasible, you know, not not feasible, but it still looks good on the surface. <laughs> it looks like it's got potential, um, but it's only when you actually start to do the balancing, do the do the weights, do the speeds, do the magazine capacities, do the endurance. Once you start to put all those things together and find out what's the balance that works, what's the minimum, you know, feasible size minimum feasible capacity and then compare that investment with the other investments that we that you've got mentioned so uh, until then you know this is where you need this well this is basically where you need to put down a business case mm -hmm. so it, it's it's well it's an idea that has potential but um it's you know maybe it's one something that you can give your um engineering students to um produce a a, a feasibility study into dr clark 
my engineering students are mechanical engineers, civil engineers, and building surveyors. Yeah, they pretty do a good job. And aeronautical engineers. To be fair, actually, they probably would. Because because they are not invested, that they, they, they haven't been um, um, brainwashed with uh, too many um, out of date ideas. <laughs> to be fair, I'm the one who's been teaching them history of engineering. What do you think they've been doing that on? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm thinking we've probably done enough. Yeah, I think we probably today. have. I didn't put my timer on, so it's all my fault. Mm-hmm. That's all right. Well, it's uh, nice and sunny here, so <laughs> I shall, all right, I shall well, venture I guess... back into the world of trying to persuade the world's most useless postal company, UPS, to actually get its story straight. Good luck. Maybe, maybe put them in charge of the. Um... Uh, shipboarding industry for a while. No, uh, then you'll end up with somehow they'll have managed to uh, export a, a dry dock to another country, lose it completely, <laughs> and it turns out that one of their employees has stolen it and is sitting at home laughing and then perplexed as to what on earth they're going to do with a 300-foot dry dock in a 60-foot garden. That's usually <laughs> how these things work. One of their employees still has a cop- my copy of Battleship Commander. I hope they're enjoying it. Uh. All right. We'll so basically, what you're saying is UPS employ people who are naval historians hey, who hey, can't hey. afford, you know, can't afford the books. <laughs> so if they're only, making your if copies. If only, if only it was that simple. Mm. All right. Oh, well. Catch some. Catch you next week. Yeah. See you next okay. week. Cheap, more cheerful next week. We'll try things more cheerful. Well, uh, given the fact that Russia's a bit pretty likely to invade by then, mm. uh, yeah. Well, I, I'd say we have <laughs> two weeks for that one. Okay. All right. Catch you. Okay. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>